Welcome to the ninth episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. This week will be different. Each week for the past eight weeks, we have focused on bringing the most recent and relevant updates coming from the medical and economic communities. This week, we will be answering questions from me, my friends and family, and our listeners. We hope as the economy starts to reopen and life slowly starts to return to normal, this will act as the start to a survival guide for our listeners. Robbie, I want to start with with asking this question. As the economy slowly starts to open back up in many areas, how should I, as a male in my 30s with pretty good health, navigate the world around me? This may sound like a selfish first question, but I know this is something my friends and I and a lot of people I know have been talking about, and a lot of people are wondering the same thing. Am I good to go to a bar, have a couple beers with my buddies, uh, if not now, when can we expect to see a few people sitting around a table at a restaurant or bar with no masks, sharing appetizer, just like they did a few months ago? Jeremy, as you know, I teach strategy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And the two questions I always ask entrepreneurial students are, what are you trying to achieve and what risks are you willing to take? Your questions are excellent but they're not the Dear Abby type of questions where values are the missing pieces. Here it is a question of the facts. We know that the virus is continuing to circulate and will do so until there is a vaccine, at least a year in the future. We also know this virus is transmissible, both from people who will never develop symptoms at all and those who will, but not for several days. As such, the more people you come in contact with, the higher the probability you will contract the infection. The good news is that at your age, and without any chronic disease, you're not likely to require hospitalization or die. The bad news is that if you do come down with the coronavirus, there's a good chance you'll feel terrible with fever, muscle aches, and severe fatigue. Putting the pieces together, If I were making the choice, I'd find a middle ground, maybe watching Netflix with a couple of friends and staying relatively far apart. I'd suggest that you and your buddies all agree that if any of you develop symptoms that could be the coronavirus, like a cough or fever, that you let each other know and keep far away for at least a week. I think there are ways to come together socially, to have a good time, to share a beer, to have a meal without overly putting yourself and your health at risk. Should I be wearing a mask everywhere I go? Uh, What if it's to the dog park or for a walk in the park? I'd be outside and not intentionally close to others, but I could get close to others inadvertently. Uh, Or what if I just run to the grocery store for, for five minutes? Masks are the best way to avoid spreading the virus 
from you to someone else. And since people can infect others before they have symptoms, it's an excellent health measure when they will be coming in contact with people. At the same time, I run every day and I don't wear a mask, but I make sure I detour six feet at least from anyone else. The grocery store where I shop does require masks for everyone. So I obviously wear one, but I would even without the requirements. And I can tell you that I feel much more comfortable seeing everyone else in the store having one on. As we've talked in the show, this virus is more transmissible than the flu. We've made the point that the R0, the number of people a single individual are, is likely to infect under normal social circumstances from the coronavirus is close to three, while the flu is about half that rate. At the same time, we should be aware that the coronavirus is nowhere near as transmissible as viruses like measles that have an R0 of 18. It's interesting to me how different cultures are when it comes to masks. There are places, particularly in Asia, where it's routine. Much of that followed the other coronaviruses that impacted their nations more than the United States, both SARS and MERS. In the United States, we associate masks with criminality. And there's a certain level of taboo. We don't feel comfortable wearing them. But I predict that over time, our country will slowly change. And by the time the pandemic is over, we're going to find more and more people wearing masks under fear of infection. When can kids safely go back to park, climb on the equipment, and go back to daycare? Little kids are, are germ factories with no sense of hygiene or anything, but they also seem to be at extremely low risks of getting hit hard by this virus. How to handle easing of social distance for children and kids is one of the most multifaceted questions we currently face. We're very fortunate that this virus seems to spare children from the most severe risks. Imagine if the coronavirus were like the Spanish flu or the swine flu, and many of those dying were under the age of five, our nation and the world would be panicked, and the steps we are currently taking would be just the beginning of what parents and communities would insist could happen. Having said that, there are many other considerations. There are the teachers, many of whom are at risk. And for young children, there are caregivers. And of course, children do come in contact with parents and grandparents who could be at risk from the disease. The issue isn't the environment being a germ factory, but it is that it is impossible to keep kids six feet apart. As such, when one gets the virus, many others will as well. Having said that, keeping kids totally isolated for over a year and watching them fall behind academically is extremely problematic. I don't believe that what many policy and medical experts are recommending on TV and the radio about aggressively restricting activities will work or even make sense. I go back to a strategic lens. We can't make the virus disappear by social distancing. Too many cases and the ease of transmission by asymptomatic individuals will make that impossible. 
The original goal we had, the one we need to continue, is to avoid overwhelming our hospitals. And that I believe we can do with an intermediate severity of steps. Germany, as we discussed last week on our show, is doing a great job. They're staggering the time classes begin so that they have fewer kids on campus at any given time and keeping the ones who are there six feet apart. They're requiring masks and they're keeping the most vulnerable adults quarantined and protected. As a result, their overall mortality rates are less than half of what exists in the United States today. What about haircuts? I've been giving myself haircuts for the last couple months, uh, but when am I okay to go back to the barber and get a haircut there? Uh, Should I wear a mask there? This is something that I've actually heard a lot more people than you would expect talking about. Jeremy, I'd apply the same thinking to haircuts as we do in restaurants and other businesses. First, I'd find a barbershop that uses scientific principles in its thinking relative to the coronavirus. All the barbers in the shop should be wearing masks to protect you and the other customers. The chairs should be six feet apart. And the number of customers in the shop at any given time, fewer than the past, the kind of people sitting around on chairs waiting to have their hair cut, coming in close contact, can't happen until there's a vaccine. There's a powerful business principle called the 80-20 rule, or more formally, the Pareto principle. It's been applied in dozens of areas, including both those that lead to success and the ones that lead to failure. I think we should apply that principle to our planning for the future relative to the coronavirus. We need to ask ourselves, how do we restore 80% of what we would like with only 20% of the restrictions? Not 100 and zero, but 80 and 20. How do we prevent 80% of the deaths by focusing on the most vulnerable 20% of the population? The 20% that accounts for 80% of the problem when it comes to deaths of people in nursing facilities, the elderly with chronic diseases, etc. The 20% of events that are most problematic are the ones with over 50 people in locations where people are inches from each other. The 20% of things we can do to limit spread are by wearing masks keeping six-foot distances, washing hands frequently, and testing people with any symptoms or contact with people who come down with COVID-19 and quarantining them. I think we can have 80% of what we otherwise would expect, 80% of what we would like, but accomplish that by figuring out the most important, the most significant, the most powerful 20%, and doing those things rigorously and consistently. Back to restaurants, like we talked about earlier, restaurants are starting to open back up or announce they're going to be opening back up uh, with very limited capacity. Um, I've heard anywhere from 25 to 50%. Um, Restaurants have pretty slim margins generally. Um, they'll likely not be able to make it for very long unless they raise prices. Um, Will consumers who are still feeling the impacts of the economy 
feel comfortable going to restaurants from both the health perspective and from the higher cost perspective. If restaurants and bars are looked at as more of a once in a blue moon luxury than a, you know, maybe every Friday after work routine, um, can, can restaurants and bars survive? Jeremy, every industry and business will be different as a result of the coronavirus. Airlines, hotels, mom and pop stores, multi-billion dollar companies and restaurants, they all will require a different model going forward than they have in the past. But relative to the future, I'd like to separate this question into two time periods, before a vaccine and after. Before we will see fewer people in each restaurant with intentionality when it comes to social distancing. We'll see waiters all wearing masks and there will be higher prices to offset both the increased cost of meat and other ingredients, as well as the reduced revenue from lower volume. At the same time, I think that takeout will remain much higher than the past due to the fears people will have about going out and restaurants will have to figure out a model to think of the food they prepare, both for those in attendance and a larger percentage than in the past who are at home. As a result, companies like Grubhub and DoorDash will grow in popularity. The dining experience may also be an innovative space for entrepreneurs to come up with new ideas to make the experience of eating restaurant food at home almost as memorable as doing so in the restaurant itself. Clay Christensen, who died earlier this year, was a friend and a colleague. He would point out how the same item or experience can serve different purposes and address different problems. I remember an example he used of the milkshake. It can be a breakfast meal for someone driving to work who doesn't want to risk dirtying their car. A social connector for people after a running workout or a treat for children after school. In each case, the same food, the same product, the same experience serves a different purpose. Restaurants serve a variety of social purposes besides eliminating the time required to purchase the ingredients and prepare the meal. Most people who order home delivery now do it simply to save time. But expanding that home experience to meet other social, not just nutritional purposes, could happen. Having said that, I think that once a vaccine is here, restaurants will rebound in popularity. Once people are safe, they will return to the approaches of the past. Before there was a vaccine for polio, Parents prohibited their children from public swimming pools to avoid their catching this devastating virus. Once Salk and Saban came along, this was no longer a consideration, and pools became even more popular. I read on the NPR website last week that many of the emergency field hospitals uh, that were open across the country have been shut down without seeing patients. New York uh, sent that hospital ship away. Um does this mean things are not as dire as we feared or that the social distancing worked and we flattened the curve enough? 
or are we prematurely closing these? What are your thoughts? As we saw early in the pandemic, exponential viral spread is terrifying. With the coronavirus having an R naught of close to three, the number of cases doubles every three days. That's four times the number of cases each week and 16 times every two weeks. The difference between having 1,000 people on respirators and needing 16,000 two weeks later defies comprehension. It is hard to believe that a month ago, our nation had done only 10,000 tests for coronavirus. As a result, the only reliable number we had to estimate the incidence of COVID-19 was the number of deaths, and that is a lagging indicator that tells people what happened three to four weeks ago when the patients in the ICU today first came in contact with an infected individual. We had to flatten the curve and prepare for the worst, and we did an excellent job. The human mind thinks arithmetically. The virus multiplies exponentially. I keep hearing people point to the rise in the number of deaths as a failure. They're right. Loss of life is tragic. But when this week's numbers are the same as last week's, it doesn't mean that we failed. It means that we have made the curve completely flat. When it comes to deaths from most diseases, heart attacks or strokes as an example, the increase is arithmetic. And by that, I mean that next year's total deaths will be similar to this year's, maybe 10% higher or lower. Doubling over a year would be considered a disaster. When it comes to a virus like the coronavirus, two weeks from now, the number could be 16 times higher. That's 1,600% higher. You can't take a chance during the exponential growth phase of a viral pandemic. Kudos to the leaders who move forward rapidly. They did the right thing to prepare. Was shutting down these field hospitals um, a good idea? You, you know, death projections are going up. And, you know, some people are talking about a massive second wave hitting, you know, later this year or, or next year. When would a second wave come and, and how bad could that potentially be? It's possible that there will be a true second wave as a result of the virus mutating, but it's unlikely. Fortunately for us, the opposite seems to be happening. This virus is relatively stable, and if anything, would become less, not more lethal. As such, a sudden rise in the number of cases and the resulting deaths won't be from the virus, but from the decisions we make relative to social distancing. As schools and businesses open, people will come into closer contact with each other. Children and shoppers will become infected, and they will transmit the virus to others in their families. When that happens, more people will be infected. But it won't be a second wave. It will just be a continuation of the first. Some would say, therefore, that our nation should remain in total lockdown. I think that's myopic. There are consequences for children when schools are closed. We watch reading scores drop 
particularly in lower socioeconomic situations, every summer. And that's only a three-month closure. We know that millions of children across the United States depend on the lunches and the breakfasts that are served at their schools for proper nutrition. And we're very aware, particularly you as a businessman, that when businesses close and people don't have jobs, they can't afford food, medicine, heat, or shelter. We have to understand that the villain in all of this is the virus. Once it came ashore, our nation would pay a price. The only question was, how did we want to balance the, the alternatives that we faced? Anyone who thought we could make the problem disappear or that we could avoid people becoming very sick and dying didn't understand the biology and mathematics of this particular pathogen. Robbie, I've heard it said multiple times and from multiple different places that if you're under 60 and do not have any comorbidities, your risk of dying from COVID-19 is no more than the risk of you getting in your car and driving to work every day. Is that true? What are your thoughts? And uh, what does the current data tell us? Comparisons between mortality rates are always fraught with distortions. What they're useful for is to make circumstances and issues that we can't comprehend tangible. At the same time, it's a mistake to think of the different sets of statistics as comparable. Let's begin with car deaths. In the United States, 35,000 people lose their lives each year from automobile fatalities. Similarly, on average, 40,000 to 50,000 people die each year from the flu. And in both cases, there's little media coverage. And some people have used that fact to say that our nation shouldn't be overly concerned about the coronavirus either. I think they're wrong. First, more people will die from COVID-19 than from either auto accidents or the flu. Somewhere between 100,000 and 250,000 by the time either a vaccine is available or herd immunity has been achieved. If the disease were Ebola and left uncontained, tens of millions would die. As such, we shouldn't be thinking of this at the same catastrophic level. But as we've said, it will be more problematic, more lethal, more dangerous than either the car accidents or the flu. So putting the numbers together, what's needed is vigilance, more so than with the flu, but simultaneously the need to avoid the type of panic that will be happening if the actual mortality were going to be 20 to 30 times higher. But the comparison is also wrong because the deaths from flu and accidents are also too high. Only 45% of people get the flu shot, which could save their life. And the number of traffic deaths result from alcohol, no seatbelts, and excess speed, each of which could be addressed. When I put the pieces together and I try to put COVID-19 in the context of the flu and the accidents, 
I reached the same conclusion about all three. We need to be smart, not stupid. Some deaths will happen from each of them. But what about the ones that are unnecessary, ones that could be relatively easily avoided? And when it comes to the coronavirus, an area that has been overlooked are the ways that we could have taken action in advance to be ready for the pandemic that struck us, not as some once-in-a-hundred-year flood, but as a viral infection that was predictable, not to the exact day or year, but we knew would be here over a, let's call it a 10-year window. We could have had the protective equipment doctors needed stockpiled in advance. We could have funded vaccine research laboratories that would be farther ahead in the process to create a vaccine against this type of viral thread. But an area that I don't think has had the attention it should receive is that we could have done a lot better in preventing and managing chronic disease, which would have minimized the risk for those at greatest vulnerability. We know that in New York City, 94% of the people who died had at least one chronic disease and 88% had two. The leading problems were high blood pressure, obesity, and diabetes. And we have ways, we have approaches that could address each of them far more effectively than today. We just didn't make it as a nation as a high enough priority. I'm hoping we're going to learn from that, Jeremy, and we're going to elevate prevention and chronic disease management to the level of focus that it should have not just for the individuals, but for the nation as a whole. Jeremy, less than half of Americans don't obtain the flu vaccine every year, despite 40,000 to 50,000 annual deaths. Our nation is praying for a vaccine for the coronavirus. When it comes out, people will race to get to the front of the line to receive it. Do you think this will make people more likely to heed the recommendations to get a flu shot next year? I think so. I think that people are a bit scared right now of coming down with COVID-19 and the flu at the same time. I also think people are taking vaccines a lot more seriously now than normal. I'll be honest and say that in previous years, I've skipped the flu shot from time to time just because I've been busy and it was inconvenient to get or even just that it slipped my mind. I know many people who feel and act the same. Uh, I think that for at least the next few years, people will take the flu shot much more seriously, but I also feel like it may eventually fall back down to a low priority for people a few years after the pandemic is over. Jeremy, as you know, one of my frustrations with the coronavirus response has been that we have not taken a long-term view. We sort of address issues on a day-to-day basis. And ethicists and physicians are still grappling with the question of what we were going to do if there were not enough ventilators to take care of all the patients. So I'd like to leap ahead 
When there is a vaccine, it may take many months to manufacture enough doses for everyone. How should we decide the order? Randomly, those at highest risks, those with most important jobs, who should get to the front of the line, or at least how should the line be queued? I 100% believe that it should be given to those at highest risk first and then spread out to everyone else. I think some jobs, such as healthcare workers, military, and high-level government should obviously take priority over others. I think it's hard for people to really justify, though, some sort of ranking of whose jobs are more important. For example, some jobs that were considered super important six months ago may not even exist after this is all over with. And look at how vital certain jobs like grocery store clerks are to their communities right now. That being said, I firmly believe healthy young adults should be the lowest priority when it comes to getting these vaccinations, as they seem to be at the lowest risk. Robbie, I read that J.P. Morgan Chief Investment Officer Bob Michelle has predicted that it will take 10 to 12 years for the economy to return back to its pre-coronavirus uh, state. We're facing record numbers of unemployment. In the past few weeks, I know many, many people who have either been laid off or been forced to close their businesses. I know many more people who have been given reduced salary, hours, or a mandatory furlough. Uh, people are depressed and lonely. I do not personally know anyone that has contracted or contracted, let alone died from the coronavirus. And I really don't mean to sound selfish when I ask this, uh, but have we officially made the cure worse than the disease? Jeremy, when massive disruptions like the coronavirus happen, the world never goes back to where it was before. Just look at what's happened to air travel after 9-11. Having said that, I'm critical of the lack of strategic thinking we've applied to this problem. On this show, we've used the analogy of chess. For chess players, there are well-known scripted opening moves that players follow. We did that reasonably well, even if later than we should have and without the national leadership required. And there's an end game. And relative to the coronavirus, the end game is a vaccine. And I'm pleased that researchers are working to get to the end as quickly as possible. What we've blown as a nation is having a clear strategic middle game. We've approached this coronavirus as though it were an earthquake, unpredictable in its impact and uncertain what will come next. We don't know everything about the coronavirus. We don't know what's going to happen when the weather warms. We can't be sure whether the virus will mutate or not. But overall, we have a pretty clear idea. I've recommended a strategy based on principles such as achieving an R0 of one, an application of the 80-20 rule to segment those likely to die from the virus and those unlikely to succumb. I can't prove that my recommendation is the best approach, but what I do know for certain is that without any strategy, bad decisions are inevitable. And I don't believe as a nation we have a strategy. We don't know as an example if the relief packages passed by Congress 
are intended to fund our nation's needs for three months, six months, or a year. And if it really is three months, then the cost is actually eight to ten trillion, not the current numbers of around two to four. People promoting testing don't say whether it will be mandatory or voluntary, whether it be a condition of working or a personal choice. And if those who are positive will be encouraged to self-quarantine or mandated to do so with legal threats and monitoring devices. And how do you make capital investments without being sure how future decisions will be made relative to forcing shutdowns? No one wants to hire people and purchase supplies when they may need to shutter their doors the following weeks. I often tell students, hope is not a strategy. Unfortunately, I think that for many leaders of this country, it is. As we just said, first it was hydroxychloroquine, now it's remdesivir. People need to understand that this virus will be with us for a long time, and we need a strategy to navigate through this middle game. It will be over when the vaccine is here or when enough people have had the disease, recovered from it, and developed immunity to be able to avoid getting reinfected. When it comes to the future economics of the country, it's not clear whether businesses, particularly the larger ones, are seizing the current opportunity simply to cut back, or whether they're using it to make the changes needed to repel their businesses and organizations forward in the future. I know companies who see this as an opportunity to shift from how they acquired customers and met their needs in the past to new, technologically lower-cost solutions. As such, what might have taken that company three years to achieve relative to restructuring is now happening over three to six months. If what's happening economically is the former, that businesses and organizations are simply hunkering down and cutting back, the J.P. Morgan Chase people will be right. It could be five to 10 years before our nation is as vibrant as in the past. But if it's the latter, and I'm hoping that it is, then we could see a return to a healthier economy in the United States as soon as a year from now. I believe that healthcare, Jeremy, will be a huge determinant of what happens. I'll be publishing an article in Forbes tomorrow on this topic. We can't wait for the end of the coronavirus to make the changes needed in our healthcare systems because when we come out of this pandemic, our economy will be weakened and at risk of going into not just another recession, but a depression. And healthcare is an area of major risk and opportunity. The costs have been rising far more rapidly than the GDP or take-home income. We see chronic disease growing and the costs increasing. And if we have 
trillions of dollars to repay. And if we have businesses that are teetering, we need to find ways to make that care more efficient and effective in order to be able to have the resources that we need in so many other ways. You know, some people have made the analogy between the coronavirus war and other hostilities. There's one similarity, but there are two differences. The similarity, unfortunately, is that there's a tragedy of death in both. The differences, however, is that first of all, in times of hostility between nations, there are winners and losers. And it's rarely clear whether a particular nation will be a victor or not. I can tell listeners when it comes to the coronavirus, we will win. It may take a while, but there is no question that we will defeat this virus as we have a myriad of other viral diseases. On the other hand, when we come out of this, our economy will be weakened. Usually to the victor goes the spoils in internation hostilities. We saw that in the United States. We came out of World War II, a very vibrant country producing 70% of the world's steel and autos. And we had a boom that followed that. Coming out of the coronavirus war, our country will be weakened. And we need to take the steps now to prepare ourselves. Often when I give keynote addresses, I talk about the theme of disruption. I point out that every industry that I've looked at that has been as inefficient and effective as healthcare has ended up being disrupted. And I've told the audience, disruption in healthcare is inevitable. And in the Q&A, the first question I always get is, when? My answer for the past three years has been, when the next recession hits, it's here now. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, visit the contact page on our website or send us a message via Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day.